Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview, or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. This last Thursday morning, I I was where I where I typically am on Thursday mornings at, at Thursday morning prayer. Uh, there's a group of pastors and leaders in the community who have been gathering on Thursday mornings to pray for, gosh, about 30 years now. And so I've been a regular attender of this group for you know, the last, I don't know, 15 years or so. And uh, and. And I, I know, I think a, a few months ago, I was sharing about walking out early one time because I was really upset with things that were being prayed. And, and so it's, it's a bit of a, a love-hate relationship at times, um, but, but I, it, I keep going back. I mean, number one, because these are the people in the community who are, are praying. You know, I mean, you can imagine that probably every, every church talks about prayer, at least, um, and, and I think... Uh, people like to say things like, yeah, we're all one in the body of Christ and we're really for each other. And, and uh, we, w- this is the group of people who are actually showing up together to pray. And so uh, that keeps me coming back. Anyhow, uh, so I was there this Thursday and um, one of uh, Longview's newest church plant pastors was there. His name's Nick Sizemore. He's the, a part of the uh, church that was planted here in town, they're actually a, like a uh, extension campus of the Promise Church down in Woodland, and and I've been wanting to connect with Nick for a while, and just hadn't had a chance to run into him, and um, and so here he is, and so I met Nick, and then after prayer, uh, he and I and a couple of other pastors got together for some coffee, um, just to you know just to talk ministry and life and and connect a little bit, and so um, we're over there having. Uh, coffee at, at the Monticello after prayer, and uh, one of the other pastors that's that's been around town for a long time asked asked me, "Hey, so you, you've planted a church in our community? Do you have any advice for Nick? Do you have anything that you would tell him?" And and I found myself right away uh, telling him, "Hey, you know what? Uh, there's a lot that I might do differently if I had it to do over again." But, but one thing that we did and one thing that I'm really happy with and one thing that really worked out for us is that we found ways from the very start for our church plant to, to not be about just our congregation. I said our heart when we first started was that this church plant, in, this is back in 2013, would be an expression of unity in the body of Christ and not disunity, that we would be for other churches, other ministries, other people, and 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 be supportive of those things and I said man that has worked out for us so well because if you can do that if you can really sort of join yourself to other congregations and other ministries and walk in relationship with other pastors and collaborate on things I said the beautiful thing that happens is that if you can connect to people in that way then everything that they win all of their wins all of their victories all of their successes are things that you really enjoy and you really share in with them. So when another church has like a good day and you hear about it, if you've invested into them in some way or another, then you don't feel feelings of envy or jealousy. You're like, yes, 
my work paid off. These relationships make you feel uh, and, and be able to celebrate genuinely the successes. And when there's failures or when there's disappointments, you feel those things as well. Um, I told them it's kind of like investing, right? And you want to diversify your investments. And so if all of renewal's effort is spent on renewal, then it's like all of our hopes and dreams are staked on this one congregation, I don't know, filling lots of seats and transforming lives. And, and, but if you have scattered seed across the whole body of Christ in the region, and if you have you know, invested yourself into that relationally and, and even financially at times, then when they have wins and successes, you're like, yes, this is so awesome. We're so happy for you. And we genuinely are because we, we invested in that hoping that it would work out well. Um, I could have gone on all day talking about it. And, and this, is, this isn't like this is any time I have an opportunity to encourage uh, a younger, newer kind of church planter or someone coming to town to start a ministry, like this is my sales pitch for them. Like find a way to connect with and invest in what other people are doing. Um, I, I, I could have talked all day because this is really one of my core passions as a minister of the gospel. You know, I, I, we've been doing a series on my core passions and a few weeks ago someone had asked me the question, what are you most passionate about? And I, I spent some time thinking about it, and I d- determined that it would be good to share this, these passions with you on a, on a Sunday morning kind of setting. I, I talked about a few weeks ago how my first passion is that people would live loved by their Savior. That, you know, at the end of the day, I and, and hopefully you too are on this very personal journey with God where you are hopefully experiencing His love through your relationship with Jesus Christ, through your engagement in the body of Christ, you're experiencing his love in, in ways that are, are rooted in your daily life and, and the experiences that you have in your daily life. They're not just thing, ideas that you hold in your head, but this is lived experience, things that you've, that you've lived out. You've felt his love in some kind of a meaningful way, and you've experienced a relationship with a living God in some kind of a, a meaningful, grounded in your actual life kind of way. Uh, second passion of mine is the church getting outside of itself to love others. So if we're living life with God and experiencing his love and being changed by his love, we begin to care about the things that he cares about. And Jesus said of himself that he came to seek and save the lost. And so the church should care deeply about those who are on the outside, enough so that we would get outside of ourselves to, to love the lost, to reach out to them. And we talked about that last week, how uh, even Christ's final commission to his disciples was to go and make disciples. We talked about how that's describing this highly relational process where those who are walking with God invite other people to walk with them while they walk with God and to live life-on-life kind of life, to, to live in intimacy and openness and vulnerability with one another. And, uh, and that out of that, the church is able to tap into this universal human need that people have for connection and for relationship. The church is able to tap into that and love people into the kingdom through meaningful discipleship. Um, And then today we're talking about this third passion of mine, this idea that, especially in the context of, of as a minister in the church, this idea that I really want to see the church get outside of itself to love 
Love the Big C Church. I have a friend who's launching a ministry here in the community called CityServe, and he's retired from 30 years of, of pastoral ministry, and he's moving into this new ministry he calls CityServe, and, and his vision is to walk with pastors as kind of a mentor and, and to be a connection point for pastors and, and ministries to be connected with one another so that unity in the body of Christ would continue to grow. And, and part of what he's doing is um, filming interviews of different pastors so that, you know, maybe you're new to the community and you don't know who's who. You could check out some of these interviews and kind of just get an idea of who people are. And, and so he, he was filming my interview a couple weeks ago, and, and, I, and we were filming it in Hearth. And he asked me the question, like, when you see the church, what do you see? And I know that what he was anticipating was kind of this young firebrand teacher to talk about everything that he sees wrong with the church because that's often the perspective that I bring to these you know larger church gatherings I, I, I tend to be 20 years younger than everybody else who's there and and I tend to have different ideas about what the church should be doing or what's important than than maybe they do and and so he sets me up for this question hoping that I'm going to go on on this rant and I'm about to and then and then I I remembered that when I'm talking about the church, I'm talking about the bride of Christ. And I was like, man, I should be careful about what I say here. One, because this is going to go on the internet and be there for all time. And two, because I know that God really, really loves his people. And I know that it's easy for, you know, a, a younger pastor, you know, to be a younger pastor, you just have to be pushing middle age nowadays. You don't that's, that's what it takes. I know it's easy for a younger pastor to look at how things are going and think this should change and that should change. And I've, I've been, you know, pretty, pretty open-mouthed about my opinions at times. <laughs> and then over time, you begin to realize, oh, I, I guess those people who are a little older or a little wiser, maybe they have, like, good reasons for doing certain things. Or maybe they've, maybe they've already tried your great new idea, and they saw that it was not a great new idea. It was just an old bad idea that you're not old enough to know. Um, anyhow, so I, I completely uh, destroyed his plans to get me going on what should change the church. I said, I, you know, I look at the church, and I'm reminded that God loves the church and that he cares deeply about it and 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 so I know that I'm like a part of this cynical generation that loves to talk about all that's wrong with society and structures and and everything that needs to change I know that that's that's I mean that's who I am you know at the same time I really believe that God is a God who can bring good out of even things that are corrupted I really believe that God loves his church and loves his people dearly and and even the ones who are you know quote unquote getting it wrong or or being ridiculous like God's still patient and gracious with them just like he's patient and gracious with me it was kind of anticlimactic for my interview because I didn't go uh, into the rant that I think he was hoping for but um, you know the church being at war with itself the people of God being the first ones to to crucify one another for lack of a better term that's as old as the people of God having an identity as the people of God. Um, you know, the story of, of the people of God kind of begins with this man, Abraham, in the Old Testament. And, and, and right away, amongst Abraham's two children, we see persecution happening between Ishmael and Isaac. And then 
Uh, Isaac has two sons, and there's war between Jacob and Esau. There's contention. There's conflict. And, and, and these are God's people. And then, and then uh, Jacob ends up giving, you know, having 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And we know there's conflict. There's the people of God persecuting and fighting against the people of God, selling their brother into slavery. I, I mean, tragic things. And we, uh, we, this last, last year we were doing a series on the book of Judges, and, and one of the takeaways from that, that story of, of God working through the, the judges of Israel was the realization that at that point in Israel's history, more Israelites died at the hands of Israelites than any of the people around them who were persecuting them. And so you begin to realize, like, oh, man, Sometimes the worst enemy of the church or the first to persecute the church is the church. You get into the story of the New Testament and God does this new thing through Jesus Christ and, and establishes a, a new um, way for the people of God to relate to him. And who are the, the heaviest persecutors of that in the first couple of, of centuries? It's the Jewish people. It's the people of God who are like, no way. And, and they're, you know, to the point that, that they're, you know, strongly persecuting, having, them, having Christians executed and stealing all of their stuff. And um, so anyhow, it, the people of God tend to be the, the most heavy persecutors of the people of God. Um, in that first century church, there was particularly strong debate about which, uh, about... Um, about which people of God were getting it right. And so on the one hand, you had people who were of the Jewish faith and of the Jewish tradition coming to faith in Jesus Christ and, and bringing all of their background and even all of their religious practices and kind of reinventing those things through the lens of the story of the cross and the, the story of the gospel. And so... They saw their, their sacrifices and their ceremonies as now this is all pointing towards Jesus. And now that Jesus has come, we continue to, to participate in some of these traditional things. And we see them as pointing back to Jesus and the fact that he came and proclaiming the fulfillment of it. And then on the other side of it, you had people who didn't have a Jewish background who are coming to faith in Christ. And, and as they come to faith in Christ, there's a question. Well, are we all going to be circumcised like the Jews. And the guys are like, I don't think I'm going to do that. That doesn't sound like a good idea. Are we going to follow all the food laws? Well, I don't think I'm going to do that. And, and so there's tension between two sides of the church or two factions. One that sees the importance and the, and the richness of these traditions as being necessary to being a Christian. And the other side that says, well, maybe God's doing things a little bit differently now, and we don't have to follow all of these rules. And now each side is pretty hostile towards the other. In fact, the, the rhetoric between these two groups could get super heated. There's a point where the Apostle Paul is speaking of people who would be in that first group, people that are holding fast to the Jewish traditions, and, and he, he says that he wishes that these Judaizers would, would go so far in their fervor for circumcision, that they would totally emasculate themselves. And, you know, you can imagine those kinds of words are, are the kinds of things that 
well, he would be in really, he'd be in big trouble if he was up for a Supreme Court nominee after having said something like that. And so uh, things could get pretty heated. In an, an arguably better moment, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus about these two factions of the church, and he lays down um, guidance for how the members of, of one faction, this is the Gentiles, the people who aren't following all the Jewish law, he's laying out guidance for them of how they can live now that they're found in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, he writes, Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called the uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which, he adds, is done, by, done in the body by human hands, just kind of pointing out this isn't necessarily a, a divine thing. He says, Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ and you were excluded from citizenship in Israel and, the, and you were foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Paul's saying to these Gentile believers, people who didn't have the benefit of, of the Jewish history and the customs and the religion, he's saying to them that at one time, yes, God was working through this nation of Israel. He was revealing himself to the world. And at one time, you were not a part of that sort of insiders of what God's doing. And yes, even though throughout the Old Testament we see all kinds of glimpses of God opening the door to the Jewish nation and, and inviting people to come in and be a part of it, at one time the Gentiles by and large were, were separate from that. He says, but now in Christ, that was one time you were separated, but now in Christ, you who were once far away, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is, this is where you were at one time, far away, but now Christ's sacrifice, his blood, has brought those who were far away near. The power of this suffering Savior brought those who were far near to God. He continues in verse 14, he says, For Christ himself is our peace. And now he has made the two groups into one. He's destroyed the barrier and the dividing wall of hostility. How does Paul think about what Christ has done in humanity? He thinks of it like this. Because he's, he's, his life has been enriched with his Jewish tradition, Jewish tradition, he has this strong sense of the people of God identity. That God has chosen for himself a people and set them apart from the other people who have abandoned God. He says when Christ came, this is what he did. He tore down the wall between those two people and invited everyone inside. To come close. He destroyed the wall of hostility between outsiders and insiders, and he brought those who were far away, he brought them near into the same place. How did Christ do this? Verse 15, he says, Christ set aside in his flesh the law with its commands and its regulations. Through Jesus' obedience and sufferings, this sacrifice that he made that he paid for when he was clothed in earthly flesh, through that action, through Christ's sacrifice, he set aside the law and its commands and its regulations. The things that the Jewish people were doing because the law of God compelled them to do it, Jesus fulfilled that, is another way that it's said in Scripture. He fulfilled it all, and it was completed and set aside. Now, to the Gentiles, this is great news, right? Because it doesn't matter your background, it doesn't matter your culture, it doesn't matter where you've come from or how far away from God you were, in Christ, you can now be brought close 
in Christ, he's fulfilled and he's made up for any deficits you might have. And you are now brought close into the same place that the people of God ever were. It's good news to the Gentiles. But to the historic people of God, it's a little bit different. This news causes some real soul searching to happen. Because especially for those of us who have spent time in our life investing in doing things right, when you find out that God's the great equalizer and he's forgiven people who did things wrong, you, it's, it's unavoidable to feel a little bit of tension in your soul. Wait a minute. They're forgiven? They're a part of this family too? Don't you know the Gentiles are allowed? They eat whatever they want. I haven't had bacon in years. This isn't fair. This is what happens inside of us, right? What about my sacrifices? What about my living out the fulfillment of the requirements of the law? If the work of Christ has fulfilled those and set them aside, I'm now feeling conflicted inside of myself. And this is the scandal of grace. And, and oftentimes anyone who's just sort of prone to self-righteous thinking, and I'm, I'm very prone to self-righteous thinking, so if, if you feel in any way convicted by what I'm saying, know that I am there with you. I am about as self-righteous as they come. Um, this can be a bitter pill to swallow. You know, in light of my own religious achievements and my own self-righteousness, it's easy to forget what God's doing in humanity. And it's easy in my own mind and my own imagination for it to loom quite large what I am doing for God. What is God's purpose in Jesus Christ? Paul continues, we're in the middle of verse 15. He says his purpose, God's purpose was to create in Christ one new humanity out of the two, and thus making peace. Continue on, he says, in one body, he reconciled both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Who did he reconcile? Both the people of God, whose religion wasn't enough to reconcile them to God, and the Gentiles, and the people who were far from God, who were just out there, you know, lost in the woods, wandering with not a clue. Christ reconciled both of them. His whole purpose was to create in Christ a new humanity. Humanity that's not wandering around lost and, and no idea, no clue. And a humanity who's not leaning into their own self-righteousness and their own religion to save them. He says, he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. And it's through him that we both have access to the Father by the one Spirit. Verse 19, he says, so consequently, because God's doing this thing, because in Christ his plan was to reconcile those who were far and those who were near to God. Consequently, he says to the Gentiles, you're no longer foreigners and strangers. You're fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. This is significant. If, if you have any understanding of what it took to become a Jewish citizen, it was a long and elaborate and demanding process. And Paul's essentially saying to these Gentiles that because of what Christ has done, he is the only process that is necessary. And now God has made the Jews and the Gentiles one 
simply by virtue of the power of Christ's work. I think sometimes when we look at people who are on the outside and we have our list of the boxes that we want them to check to be in, we have to be really careful because any time that we're tempted to say, uh, you're in if you've done this and this and this, we're, we're in danger of diminishing the power of Christ's work. People aren't saved because they say the right words or they pray the right prayer or they they attend the right class or they got baptized or didn't. People are saved because on a tree a couple thousand years ago, the creator of the universe, clothed in human flesh, offered up his life, declaring to humanity that there is now a new covenant between God and his creation. A covenant where he's no longer counting men's sins against them. And that's when people are saved. If someone asked you, when are you saved? You could say, and it would be correct, I was saved a couple thousand years ago when the God of creation offered up his life on a tree. And anything that I have done has been a result of his spirit drawing me and being merciful to me and him being patient with me as I journey towards him. Paul says, you're no longer foreigners and strangers. Just like that, God took care of it. You're fellow citizens of God's people. You're all members of his household. You're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And Christ Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone. And in him, the whole building is joined together and it rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Paul is saying to the Gentile believers, here's the deal. You guys are in, and it is actually through you that God is building his holy temple. When they went to build the temple, they built it a couple of times. <laughs> when, they, when they built the temple, God commanded, they used the best of the best. You know, the, the finest jewels, the best wood, the best... Uh, Uh, textiles, like it is, and it's all to communicate, this is a holy and and sanctified place. God's presence is a holy and sanctified place. And when 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 God, through Jesus Christ, sort of, you know, blows a lid off the thing and, and builds his eternal temple that is no longer a building sitting in a place, but it is a people, he uses the best of the best. And he says to humanity, essentially he's saying to the the Gentiles here, God is using you to build his temple. You are made in the image of God as well. You, by virtue of your humanity, are the best of the best that God can build with. You are holy. You are set apart. You are meant to communicate to the world around you how holy this God is, how different he is. The main point being that we are all one in Christ. And those who worship God through the Jewish law and the traditions, and those whose background in worship, you know, the Gentiles are more of a pagan in nature, and there's some maybe learning that needs to happen, some education, but everyone's being brought together in Christ. And to be found in Christ is to be made one with all who are in Christ. And to be found in Christ is to be the stuff worthy of building a temple to the one true God of the universe. The Spirit's still preaching this gospel of oneness and unity to the church today. And the church, I believe, continues to struggle with this truth. 
What about those people who aren't wearing the right clothes or eating the right foods or worshiping on the right day? And the church has a long history of, of crucifying one another over the things that we don't think other people are doing right. There are historians who have talked about, um, you know, how did the Western world get to be how it is? And, and a number of historians believe that the, the, the scientific renaissance that happened and sort of the post-Christian Europe that came out of that and then the post-Christian, you know, Western world that came out of that was a direct result of the Hundred Years' Wars in Europe. And so, you know, we, we are a, uh, a Protestant church. We're, we're not Catholics here, and, and probably many of you are, are of Protestant backgrounds. And, and we look back at the, the Reformation that happened with Martin Luther and others uh, over that period of time as like this amazing moment when, when, the, when the truth of God was, and the Spirit was working in the church and blowing, you know, blowing the, the doors off again and, and power was, was no longer concentrated in Rome, but it was given to the people. And, and there's a lot of beauty and wonderful things in that. But we forget that you get a couple generations down the road and now all across Europe, Christians are killing Christians. And there's this crazy alliances between political power and religious power. And, and part of the reason that we have the separation of church and state in our country is these, uh, these people who were you know, thinkers and, a, and a kind of a result of the Renaissance are like, we have seen what it looks like when the church and the state work together. And it's Christians killing Christians for a couple hundred years. And we don't want any part of that over here on this side of the ocean. Anyhow, we, so many historians have, have, have made the case that part of the reason that God has been cast out of society is because God's people have been at war with each other, violently at war with each other in, uh, in horrible and terrible ways. It's interesting when Jesus uh, was talking to his disciples in John chapter 13, uh, one of the things that he says that, <laughs> that will be telling of whether or not they will stand out as his disciples. He said to them, the world is going to know that you're my disciples because of your love for one another. And he's saying this to a group of disciples who have a history of arguing with one another, of fighting with one another for places of prominence, of, of trying to one-up each other. Uh, one of my favorite stories is from the Gospel of Luke. The, the disciples and Jesus are, are walking somewhere. They arrive uh, where they're going and Jesus says to them, what was that conversation you guys were having on the road? Like, you know, like he doesn't know. And, they, and, they, and they're too, uh, the, the gospeler records, they, they didn't tell, they were too embarrassed to tell him because they'd been fighting with each other about who was the greatest in the kingdom on the road. And so Jesus asked the question, they're like, I'm not telling him, I'm not telling him what that was about. I don't, they just, so this is, this is the group of people that Jesus says to them, the world is going to know that you're my disciples because of your love for one another. What does it look like when the church loves the Big C Church? What does it look like when a congregation is excited about and loving towards other congregations? I really believe that the credibility of the church's voice in the larger community and the world around them is increased when the church loves one another. Paul is writing to um, the Galatians in, in Galatians chapter 2, and one of the things that he says to them is to bear one another's burdens. 
And he says, because in doing so, you will fulfill the love of Christ or the law of Christ. It's crazy when someone like Paul, who was, you know, a Jew of Jews, had this law thing down. I mean, he claimed in scripture that he was blameless before the Lord in terms of obedience to the law. And, you know, I, I feel like the fact the Holy Spirit let him write that and made it into Scripture, it seems, yeah, he must have been like a really good guy. And yet he says, it's nothing compared to the riches of knowing Christ my Savior. And when he's trying to give direction to the church about how they should behave, what are the things that they should hold to? What are the practices that they should care deeply about? He says, you should bear one another's burdens. You should care about the things that, you know, other Christians care about. When they are burdened with something, you should come in alongside them. You should carry that as if it were your own. And, of course, we're familiar with the idea that there's all of this familial language being used, brothers and sisters, and, and you know, you care as deeply as they do. Their wins are your wins. I mean, if, if you have a family member who, I don't know, gets a brand new job, you're super happy for him. You're excited for him. You're rejoicing for them. When they, when they, you know, win a trip to Disneyland, you're like, that's so cool. I'm so happy for you. We relate to family differently than we relate to other people. There's not usually a lot of, of temptation to become envious when people that we are invested in win. And I think part of what God's trying to do in his people is create this new humanity where we're unified together. And if the body of Christ can't embrace that, if, if your interactions with other congregations or other movements of God or uh, for me as a pastor, if my interactions with other pastors is laced with jealousy and insecurity and hoping that they fail and all their people come to my church, like that's not getting it done. That's not how God has called us to live. And so, um, so as a church, we want to be people who are getting outside of ourselves to love the church. Um, I have a couple of questions for us to discuss on this. And then we'll come before the Lord's table to close the service. Um, I, it's, it's getting late, and I've got all these pages of notes. So sorry, this was a rough landing. Uh, but we made it. We made it to the ground, and we'll move on now. Uh, Lord, thank you for your love for us. We thank you that your love for us is extended even to those who are on the outside. Because we know, we know that we were outsiders too. And so we're so grateful that you have reached out to us. You have drawn us near. And we thank you that you didn't discriminate against us because of all of our issues. And we thank you that you don't discriminate against others. But in Christ, there is an opportunity for humanity to be one and to be reconciled. We thank you that reconciliation is not just simply to you, but that you have undone the dividing wall of hostility. You've torn it down where brother would kill brother where we would persecute one another, where we would be jealous of one another. We think you've broken all of that down. We pray that we would be people who could live into that truth and that we would be motivated out of love and we would be faithful to carry the burdens of those that you call us to walk with and to carry the burdens of all who are found in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.